Okay, thank you guys so much for coming. It's great to worship together. Uh, open up your Bibles to first, I'm sorry, second Peter 1, 1 through 15. My brain almost wants to go to first Peter, but we're gonna skip that and we are now in second Peter 1, 1 through 15. And if you're joining us here in person, you're gonna see it on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, you'll see it on your screen at home. This is God's word. Please follow along as I read. Simeon, or Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much, Lord God, for this time and that precious time of worship, and we thank you for your presence that is always with us. Thank you for your word as well, Lord. Your word brings life. It protects, it guides, it nourishes our souls, and I pray now that you would open it up to our hearts, that we would receive your word with faith. So, Lord God, thank you, Lord, and hide me behind your word as well, that I would truly just be a deliverer, a messenger of your truth. We thank you, Father, and be with those joining online as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, well, praise the Lord. We began last week a brand new sermon series on the book of 2 Peter, and I said the reason why I wanted to go through this book, the reason why we skipped over 1 Peter, because there is another letter before this one, is because this letter uniquely addresses, I believe, the times we're living in. So it's because of the times we're living in that I wanted to look at 2 Peter, And the times that we're living in can be summarized by what Peter calls corruption. There is a very significant word in verse 4, corruption. And last week, I gave a list of stats and numbers describing the corruption that is happening in our society right now. And I'm not going to do that again. I won't mention all those numbers. But I did mention several different things. For example, the growing spiritual deception in our culture right now. But in our country right now, for the first time in the history of our country, paganism is on the rise. More and more people are becoming pagans than ever before. New age religions and new age type beliefs are also expanding very, very fast. And another popular movement, which I believe will be a great deception, is the UFO movement as well. So very bizarre things are happening in our time right now. And so don't be surprised if within the next 10 years, if our country looks very different than what it is now. Don't be surprised, for example, if in 10 years there is widespread belief in aliens and there are increased reports of strange sightings. All of those things are deceptions. But a lot of these people in these movements, what they're looking for is salvation. So that's what they're looking for. But they're unfortunately looking in the wrong place. There's also a growing redefinition of human sexuality and human nature itself. And so this never happened in our country before. But there is a radical shift in the way people see human beings, especially human sexuality. And we all know that. And this is happening through the promotion of different radical ideologies. And so we know this, but this has produced widespread confusion and chaos in our society. 
Okay, we can't even answer the most basic questions on human nature. And this is affecting especially the youngest in our society, our children. You know, I wasn't going to necessarily mention this, but this past week I had a wonderful fellowship time with some old college friends. And during that talk, some of my friends, uh, they live in different parts of the world actually. One came from uh, overseas, one lives here. And they were saying that, yeah, you know, let me tell you what's happening in the U.S., there are schools in my neighborhood where they are literally shutting down or they can't even keep up enrollment because parents are pulling their kids out of school. And they're not even necessarily people who believe in homeschooling. They actually have their kids in those schools. But they're saying, yeah, we don't know what's happening. All these schools are just draining and some are even closing down. And I think it's because a lot of people are noticing, wow, it's affecting our children even. So this is happening. There's also a growing hopelessness and despair in our society. But last week, I shared some numbers on how men are struggling badly in our society with dropping out of school at the highest rates, joblessness, hopelessness, addiction, suicides. Women are also struggling in their own unique ways. But according to the CDC, women have seen a sharp rise in hopelessness and despair, especially through things like social media. Some are calling all of this a culture of death, so I've heard that. But we are now currently living in this culture of death in our society. You know, recently, as proof of this, I saw some articles on the extreme euthanasia laws in Canada. They were trying to pass them in 2022, and they're actually trying to pass them again this year. But these radical laws, they would allow euthanasia for people suffering from mental illness. That's a first. And these laws would even apply to, in certain, certain circumstances, children. So euthanizing even children. I mean, that is radical. That is a culture of death. So Christians are noticing this, but Christians are not, aren't immune to this either. But tens of millions, as I said last week, of Christians, quote unquote, have left the church and the Christian faith altogether. And people who are studying these trends, they have called it the largest and fastest religious shift in the history of the U.S., so all this is happening right now before our eyes. We are living through it. So these are dark and unprecedented times we're living in. And so going back to the letter of 2 Peter, when Peter talked about his time as corruption, a time of corruption, I think that was exactly right on. That is exactly what we are seeing today. And that Greek word that Peter used for corruption is phuthora, phuthora. And it means decay, ruin, moral ruin, depravity, something that is perishable. So it is a corruption caused by epithumia, Peter says. Epithumia, we've talked about this before, but it is a very, very common Greek word in the New Testament. But it means over-the-top, uncontrollable, sinful desires. So imagine a river at a time of a lot of rain, what happens? It floods. And so these river waters, they don't stay in the banks, but they overflood the banks. And so that's the picture of epithumia. These are uncontrollable, over-the-top, sinful desires. And so Peter is saying, in my day, in our time, believers, churches, we are living in a time of corruption caused by epithumia, these over-the-top desires. And that's our time. And by nature, something that has been corrupted like that won't be around very long, at least in the way it is currently. It's not going to be around very long. It is in decay it is perishable. And so I really believe these are possibilities. They're not predictions, but they're possibilities. But I really believe our society could either be headed towards fragmentation. Okay, things are going to just break up. People are going to start living in their own communities with their own values and beliefs, but surrounded by other communities that are very hostile to them. So we're going to see fragmentation or collapse or replacement. Something's going to totally replace what we see now was something radically different and that might be the worst possibility of all. But it looks like one of those options or maybe a version of all three is where our society is headed. And Peter understood this. He understood what corruption looks like because he was writing his letter during similar times. So he wrote this letter during the reign of Nero, the Roman emperor who historians say was literally insane. He was crazy. And Nero was falsely accusing and brutally persecuting the Christians. So it was a really bad time. During the time of Nero, I mean, Christians were even tied to stakes in the Colosseum, covered with tar and lit on fire. There were human candles. And so that was happening. 
And during this time, Peter, in fact, himself was arrested, he was imprisoned, and he was waiting to be executed. And eventually he gave his life for the gospel. He was crucified upside down, tradition says. So when Peter talked about corruption in the world, he understood that very well. He knew exactly what that meant. But here's the good news, brothers and sisters, and there is great news in this letter. But the good news, it shines right from the opening of the letter. But Peter wrote in verse 4, However, even in these dark, corrupted times, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have done what? They have escaped the corruption of the world. Amen? Peter says it right here. Who have escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And how did believers escape this corruption? Peter tells us, through the gracious and mighty redemption of God that he talks about in the verses before. He's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how do believers today escape the corruption all around us? Through the gospel. Through faith and being anchored in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this is why Peter wrote his letter. The primary purpose of this letter was to reestablish the believers who were going to read it in the truth of the gospel. That's why he wrote it. So he said in verse 12, you're already established in it. He says that in verse 12, but he wants them to be reestablished. Okay, I want you to be reestablished, re-anchored. I want you to be solid, rock solid in these truths. Why? Because we live in dark, corrupted times. So he wanted to remind the churches of their faith in the gospel truths to be anchored in them. And that, by the way, brothers and sisters, is my desire for all of us here, that we would be aware of the times we live in, but that we wouldn't be afraid. You know, as I read all these things, you know, I'm online a lot as a pastor, I feel like I need to read the news and be aware, but sometimes I get a little afraid, I get worried, but then the Lord reminds me, don't be afraid. There's no need to be afraid, and that's my desire for all of us. Be aware, but to not be afraid or to be worried. Why? Because you have the truth of the gospel and you are already anchored in it, most of us here. We are anchored in God's truth. Our faith is rooted in the gospel so nothing can shake us. So that's my desire. That's what I want for all of us. So then here's the big question that we began to answer last week. But how exactly does the gospel keep us from not falling away? How exactly does the gospel keep us growing in Christ? So this is what Paul, uh, Peter talks about in the opening paragraph. Okay, we are living in dark, corrupted times. So I want you to be reestablished in the gospel so that you don't fall away, so that you keep growing in Christ. So how, right? How? How does that happen? Well, Peter lays out how is by having gospel goals, a gospel foundation, gospel progress, and then finally gospel accountability. And we looked at the first two last week. Gospel goals, gospel foundation, and then I want to just finish it today. Gospel progress and gospel accountability. So in order to escape from the corruption of this world, Peter wants believers to be established in the gospel and to continue building your lives on the gospel. If you want to summarize, what is he talking about in this opening paragraph? That's what he's talking about. How are you going to be established in the gospel and then keep building your lives on it? so that you don't fall away, so that you will reach the goals that God has for you. And I really like the way he talks about the Christian life in this paragraph, but the way I kind of envision it as I read through it, I've read through it several times in preparation for these messages, but it's kind of like building this tall building. And God is the architect. He is graciously building this for you, this Christian life, but you are also diligently cooperating with God in building this Christian life. Imagine this incredibly tall skyscraper. It's your Christian life. This very tall building. And God is the architect. He's building it graciously for you, but you're also cooperating diligently with God. And so it's both. Building your Christian life is both a gift of God's grace and it's your diligent effort. And Peter's opening paragraph is a master class in teaching both. If you ever want to get like a great example of both God's grace and your efforts combined together to produce the Christian life, I mean, read 1 Peter. I mean, I keep saying that. 2 Peter, read 2 Peter, chapter 1, 2 Peter. But this is a master class. And we're going to see more of that in a little bit. 
So Peter here, he starts out in his opening paragraph with the foundation of the Christian life, verses one through five. Where do you look at that? The foundation of the Christian life, which is the gospel. And here, right out of the gaze, I mean, he just talks about one glory after another of glorious gospel truths. Okay, this is what you have, churches. This is what you have, believers. And so we already walked through all of this. But every single one of these is talking about the gracious gift of God. Okay, you had nothing to do with this. Okay, this is purely God's gracious gift. Do you guys know what the word is? It's, it's a theological word for God's gracious work in salvation. His gracious work in justification. Do you guys know what the word is? It's monergism. So this is monergistic, these verses. Okay, mono means one, erg or ergo means work. It's just one person's work. Whose work? God's work. So your salvation, your justification is monergistic. It is God's work. It's his work alone. And you see that in all these verses. So right out of the gates, he says, you have obtained a faith. And that word obtained, I know it sounds like you did something to get it, but, but the real word there, the Greek word is, is really been given to you. You've been given, it's been given to you a faith of equal standing. See, it's a gift. You've been given this faith that is equal in standing to ours. So that's mind-blowing. We talked about that last week. And then God's also given you peace and grace that multiplies over your life. He has given you divine power, right? Divine power has been granted to you for all things pertaining to life and godliness. So everything you need is already yours the moment you're born as a Christian. So we talked about like a baby girl, the moment that baby is born, she already has all the body parts and organs to become a mature adult. It's the same as a baby Christian. You already have everything. God's given it to you. He has also granted to us his precious and very great promises. Why? So that you may actually have God's divine nature within you. And that word divine nature, I mean, it's kind of mysterious. Paul's pulling all these words from the Greek world. These are very unusual words in the New Testament. I, did I say Paul? Peter. <laughs> Peter. But Peter's pulling all these words from the Greek world. I think he's trying to relate to his Greek audience. But, but most likely this word is referring to the Holy Spirit. But the point is, is it's a gift. You have God's very own nature inside of you. And through all of this, you have escaped from the corruption that is in the world. Amen? So what is that? That is the foundation. So again, what is the Christian life? Think of a tall building. So right now, all of us, we're building this building. God is building it on our behalf. Some is taller than others, right? Some is a little bit more crooked than others. But, but we're all building these tall buildings, the Christian life, and what's the foundation? It's the gospel, what we just covered, what Peter just covered. So this is God's gracious gift. It is monergistic, mono, one, erg, work. It is one person's work. Now, after that, he, towards the end, talks also about the goal. So I really love this. It's exactly like a building. So there's a foundation, and then Peter, towards uh, the end of that paragraph, verses 10 through 11, he also mentioned the goal. So we looked at that as well. There is a goal where this building is headed. And that goal is to have faith in Christ that is sure. It is rock solid. A faith that will endure to the end. So that's one goal. The second goal is to enter heaven, Christ's eternal kingdom, because of that faith that you have. So those are the two goals. And by the way, many, many people who go to church today are not going to have those goals. They're not going to reach those goals because many have fallen away. They no longer have this faith. And because of that, they're no longer going to enter God's kingdom, Christ's eternal kingdom. And so Peter says, brothers and sisters, there's a clear goal to your Christian life. Okay, you're building something. God is building something. There's a foundation. God gave you that foundation and there's a goal where it's headed. It is to have a faith that will last and endure so that you will enter heaven, Christ's eternal kingdom. And how many Christians today come to church, go home, come back to church, go home, go to Bible study, do all these things and have no goal whatsoever in their lives. They have no goal to their Christian life. And then when they leave the church and the faith, it's no wonder why keep doing something that's pointless. I wouldn't. So I don't necessarily blame them. Maybe nobody told them that there's a goal to the Christian life. 
But Peter tells us there are clear goals to the Christian life. So do you guys see this? It's a very neat picture that he's painting here. So here's a clear foundation. God has laid it. You had nothing to do with it, monergistic. And then there is a clear goal. Okay, it's, it's, it's headed somewhere. God wants you to have a faith that will last and he wants you to come into his kingdom, his eternal kingdom. So from beginning to end, all of that is God's gracious gift. So ultimately, this building that, that is being, being built is God. It is his building. That's why Paul said in Philippians 1.6, the good work he began, he will complete. So this is God's work. And Peter just lays this out in a beautiful, beautiful way. But then, now we're going to go into the last two points. But then Peter, he says what? So now, based on all of that, right, based on this foundation that he has laid by pure grace as a gift, what does it say? For this very reason. For this very reason. So look at 2 Peter 2, 5, uh, 1, 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins." So I love this. Peter is such a great writer. I didn't know Peter was such a great writer. <laughs> I like Paul. I thought Paul was always amazing. But, but Peter is just awesome as well. But, but I love this picture. So here's a building. Here's the foundation. Pure grace. God's gift. He laid it for you. Now on top of that, you have the foundation by faith. On top of that faith, he says, make every effort. For this very reason, the reason of God giving you this foundation, you having faith in it, make every effort. Make every effort. And that, and that word, make every effort, is just really one word. But it has to do with the most intense striving. Another translation would be, do your very best. Spare no effort. Don't cut any corners. Work diligently, extremely hard. One commentator put it like this. Every ounce of determination you can muster. So you get the point. It's not like, oh yeah, just kind of like do this. It's like with everything you have, strive, right? This is what Peter is saying. So do you know the gift God has given you? Do you know the foundation he's laid purely by grace? Okay, all those gospel truths, right, that we just saw? Well, if you believe in that, if you have faith in that, then build, right? Make every intense effort. Strive. Don't cut corners. Focus on this. Make this your life purpose. And so basically he's saying, if you have faith in the gospel, what God has done, you just can't sit back. That's not the Christian life. And in the same way, so many Christians today, they don't have any goal in sight, right? There's no goal whatsoever. They just come to church, go home, come back to church. No goal, no purpose for Christian life. A lot of Christians as well just kick back with faith. And that's how Christians are. Oh yeah, I'm saved. So I'm going to heaven, right? Yes, you're going to heaven. Cool, great. And then from that point on, they just live their lives and they just kick back with faith. And so here Peter just makes it so clear. That is not the Christian life. And in fact, if you just kick back with your faith, quote unquote, and nothing else happens and then you die, you might not even be saved. That's what Peter says. You might not even attain the goals of having an enduring faith and entering heaven. So in other words, to use today's language, Peter is saying, don't do that. Don't just kick back with faith. Yes, you have this foundation. It's awesome. It's a gift from God. It's amazing. You could build like a hundred-story skyscraper on it. So don't just kick back. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians, is like you come to their Christian lives like, wow, you have that slab of concrete for like 20 years. Are you going to do anything on it? What else are you going to do with it? Well, I don't know. I'm busy. I have a lot going on in my life. Well, then you're not living the Christian life because Peter makes it clear. You must make every effort. Spare no effort. 
work diligently with every ounce of strength you have to now build on that faith. Is that clear? That is the Christian life. So the Christian life is not just God's grace, but now there's our effort. They go together. And you know, I keep using this analogy, um, but I can't think of a better one. I, I really tried. You know, this past week, I'm like, is there a better picture of both at work? But I just have to go back to the two-on-two tournament with LeBron James, right? But, but it really is. I can't think of anything better. But by God's pure grace, you are now in this tournament. God has gifted you by giving you as your teammate LeBron James, right? Arguably the best player today. And everybody else, they're just high school players, recreational players. And so you know you're going to win this tournament because you have LeBron. And he will carry you throughout, right? And so that's the picture of the Christian life. Who's carrying you? God is carrying you throughout your Christian life. So here's another way to put it. God has given you everything to build this building. Literally, the blueprint. He's giving you the materials, all the wood, the concrete. He's giving you the crane, the 100-foot crane, right? He's giving you a foreman, somebody who's going to be directing and executing the whole thing on site. He's giving you the construction team, right? The entire team of people who's going to begin to build this thing called your Christian life. So you have everything from God. It's like having LeBron as your teammate. He's going to carry you. But in order to win the tournament, what do you have to do? We need to get off our butts. Can I say that word in church, butts? (laughs) You need to get off your butt and get into the game and run up and down the court. And are you going to be casual? No, you better believe it. If if you're going to be his teammate, you're going to run very, very hard. You're going to give all you have. But at the end of it all, was it you that won? No. Right? You can't be like, hey, look at me. No, it's look at him. He carried the whole thing. And so that's the picture. God has given you everything, right? Again, the blueprint, materials, crane, foreman, even the construction team that's going to do all the, the, most of the work, and yet you still need to get up and build with them, build with God. And you're expected to do it very, very diligently. Why? Well, the obvious answer is it's your building, <laughs> It's your Christian life, right? You're not just, oh, I have faith, kick back for the rest of my life. No, get to work. Get to building your Christian life. It's your Christian life. It's not your mom's. It's not your dad's or the person sitting next to you. It's your Christian life. So get to work, Peter is saying. Make every effort. Spare no effort. And so this is the picture. It's very clear. And so once... The person understand that, now they're going to progress. They're going to now take that foundation and their faith in that gospel foundation, and now they're going to build. So what does it say here? Make every effort now to supplement. In other words, add. Add to your faith, what? Virtue. So add now virtue. And that word virtue, another translation is excellence. So again, Peter's kind of drawing from these Greek words from the Greek world. Um, it's, not, it's not a common word in the New Testament. But another way to say it is excellence. Excellence. And so what, what is he talking about here? Yeah, I, I like what um, one person said, but we know what it means when a knife is excellent. The excellence of a knife is the cut, right? We know what it means when a horse is excellent, like a racehorse. The excellence of a horse is to run. But what does it mean that a person is excellent? What is Peter talking about here? What does it mean that I need to be excellent at what? My job? At being nice? I mean, what are we talking about here? Well, throughout scripture, the answer is very clear. The most excellent person, quote unquote, who has ever lived is who? Christ. So this is what Peter's talking about. When he's saying, now add to your faith this virtue, this quality of being excellent, he's saying, be like Christ. Strive to be like Jesus. Now that you have this foundation, by God's grace, you have faith, right? On top of that now, the first thing you should think of is I need to start being like Christ. I need the excellence of Christ. So we don't, know, we don't have time to go into in depth in all these words, but, but think about everything that Christ is. The excellence of his love. The excellence of his boldness and courage to stand up against untruth and deception. Right, the excellence of perseverance, of suffering well, 
the excellence of forgiving his enemies, loving his enemies. I mean, just anything you could imagine is excellent. The excellence of his communion with God the Father, his prayer life, it is excellent. So this is what Peter is saying. Build on your faith. Strive to be excellent like Jesus. Okay, what else? And then after that, he says, now supplement or add to that excellence, what? Knowledge. Knowledge. And here, this is a practical kind of knowledge. Another word for it would be wisdom. So this wisdom, how does wisdom come, brothers and sisters? It comes as you begin to apply truth. So when you just sit back at church in the back row and you're just like, okay, let me just learn something today. That's not wisdom. You just got information. But wisdom comes when you try to apply it. So it comes from actually living virtuously, actually trying to live like Christ. And then as you do, you bump into things. You have a misstep here and there. Oh, I thought this is the way. Oh, it's not. And then you just learn over time. And then as you do, you grow in wisdom. So this knowledge, as one person says, is gained in the practical exercise of goodness, which in turn leads to a fuller knowledge of Christ. So knowledge needs to be applied. And then as you apply it, this person says, produces deeper knowledge. And then you apply that and then it produces more knowledge. So Peter says, okay, that's the next step. And by the way, you know, I forgot to mention this, but these are kind of like floors I see to that building. So you're adding now to that foundation these floors. And there's a big argument or debate that's been going on for a while now. But different Bible scholars, they have different takes on this. Some say it is actually in order. Peter's actually giving us these, uh, these qualities in order. You build one after another. And other people say, no, there's no real order to it. I know Peter says add this to this and this to this. But there's really no order. In ancient times, people kind of talk like that. But there's real no order. So it doesn't matter to me whether there's an order, whether it's step-by-step. Step. I like to think of it as step-by-step. Step. But they are floors to buildings, to the building of your Christian life. So after knowledge or wisdom, what does Peter say? As self-control now. And this is in particular controlling the passions. And so I really like how the Bible really affirms what other people have seen as well. But Socrates, a long time ago, basically said that no one willingly rejects the best course once he sees it. But then later, Aristotle came along and said, no, that's not true. People can totally see the best course, but then they don't have the ability to follow it. And Aristotle actually is much more in line with the Bible because that's exactly what Peter's saying here. On your own, even if you know the best way, you don't have the power to follow it. Why? Because you have all these unruly passions. So he said, after you have faith, build on that virtue or excellence, and then knowledge, wisdom. And then he said, you need to control your passions. Okay, you need to control your passions. And the primary way that happens is by the Spirit, because the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So elsewhere, the Bible commands us to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. So yes, does belief alone weaken and kill our desire for sin? It does. But if you're going to continue to grow in that, you really need to learn how to walk by the Spirit and kill the desires of the flesh by the Spirit. So the Spirit gives passion for Christ. He builds up our faith in the cross. He convicts us of sin. He empowers us to resist sin. He weakens the pull of sin on our hearts. And ultimately, he will help us to kill sin. Kill sin. You know, I shared this, I think, uh, back during uh, Easter weekend. We talked about killing sin, and I remember sharing this, but the major way the Spirit kills sin in our lives is through the Word of God. Because elsewhere, the Bible calls the Word of God what? The sword of the Spirit, right? So why is it called the sword of the Spirit? Well, it must be because the Spirit picks it up at certain times and kills things with it. So what is the Spirit killing with the sword of the Word? Your sin! So in particular, if you are being tempted, let's say, to lust, in that moment of temptation of lust, what do you do? Oh, don't do it, right? Well, you're going to fail. You have no ability to control these passions. But rather, what should you do? You should think of a Bible verse or a Bible promise, such as, in the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. 
or all who commit sexual immorality will perish. Something like that. And then as you recall the word of God, what happens? The spirit now takes that word like a sword and kills your lust. It kills that temptation. And you can apply that to anxiety. You can apply that to, you know, anger. You can apply that to a number of sins. And over time, what happens? Self-control. It's self-control. And so Peter is saying, add that. Okay, add that. Add that to your faith, and then excellence, virtue, and then knowledge or wisdom. Add self-control. And then after that, he talks about steadfastness. So now we're, in, we're still in verse six, steadfastness. And I like this. I really think there is an order here because once somebody has discipline in their lives, okay, what, what begins to happen? Okay, let's say at work, you know, in the beginning, like you have no self-control, right? You, you don't even know what's going on. You're like showing up late. You're, you're messing up on the projects. What's gonna happen? You're gonna wanna quit, right? But as you begin to have self-control, you begin to understand how to be at work you begin to see progress at work, what's gonna happen? You're gonna persevere, right? You're gonna last. And so this is what Peter is saying. Once you start seeing self-control in your life, you're gonna progress in your Christian life. Then you'll have steadfastness. So he mentions that next, have steadfastness. So steadfastness, I believe, is the fruit of consistent self-control. As you have more and more self-control by the Spirit, as you see more and more progress in your Christian life, you're going to last. Why would you quit? This is a good thing. I see the building going up, right? If you see a building rising up and it's looking good, you're not going to stop. You're going to keep going. So self-control produces perseverance. One person put it this way, mature Christians simply don't give up. And I agree. Why don't some Christians give up and why do some Christians give up? It's because some mature and others aren't. And the ones who mature, they see what's happening and they are encouraged. They don't give up. And so they will persevere. So Peter says, add that. Add steadfastness. And then he says, this is a long list, okay? Blame Peter, it's not me. (laughs) I'm just trying to be a faithful messenger here. Okay, where are we? Okay, well, now we're at godliness. So after steadfastness, Peter says, add godliness. Add godliness. Now that word in the Greek, the popular meaning is religion. He said add religion, but that, that couldn't be it. But the real meaning here is ref- reverence. That's another meaning. Add reverence. And I, w- and I believe what he's talking about here is reverence for God. Add reverence or worship of God. Now, were, were you worshiping before that? Of course you were. But he, here he's saying, in particular now, focus on your reverence and worship of God. And the reason why is because, remember, again, you're building a building, right? Peter is saying, add reverence of God because whatever you worship, you become. You will become more and more like God. And why is that? Why, why do you become what you worship? And that's true. If you worship your work and people at your work, then you're gonna become just like that. If you worship pleasure and just like hedonism in the world, you're gonna become exactly like that. Why do people become what they worship? It's because worship is valuing something more than anything else, right? The word literally means prostrate yourself. Have you ever like laid flat on the ground with your arms stretched out (laughs) before something? That's worship. Right? It's prostrating yourself before something. So if you're worshiping like that, if you're valuing something more than anything, you're submitting yourself to that, then over time you become like that. You're going to adopt the values of whatever that thing you're worshiping. You're going to start acting like the thing that you're worshiping. You're going to start looking like the thing that you're worshiping. You know, I remember this uh, kind of cute story, but I remember reading the story of a, a little boy in Beijing um, and he was basically watching TV, and every time he turned on the TV, he watched Jeremy Lin. I guess Jeremy Lin was very popular at that time. And this boy, he was amazed every single time he, wa- he would watch Lin play. In case you don't know, Jeremy Lin was a Chinese-American basketball player here, and then he ended up, I think, in Europe or somewhere else. He's playing in a different league. But this little Chinese boy just was amazed by Jeremy Lin. And so then what would happen? You know what happens. Eventually, he got Lin's jersey, right? <laughs> 
I forgot what number he wore, but he would have Lynn's jersey. And then he would buy shoes that Lynn would wear. And then every time he went out to the basketball court, he would try to do the, the plays that Lynn would do, right? He would try to shoot like Lynn. And so what is that? You become what you worship. And so here Peter is saying, okay, you're building this building, right? Floor by floor. Well, now at this point, worship God. Really focus on that. Revere him. In other words, become like him. Become like him. And once you become like him, you're really starting to see yourself become like God, then now something beautiful is gonna blossom in your life. Okay, the last two. I'm just gonna combine them. Brotherly affection and love. Because God is love. If you become like God, then the thing you're gonna see most in your life is you're gonna begin to see love, right? And the reason why I combine these two is because both of these are love. I know it says affection, but that word brotherly love is Philadelphia. He philos is love, Adelphos is brother. Philadelphia just means brotherly love. So brotherly love and agape love, that's, that, those are the last two qualities. So once you are becoming like God here, add to that now the quality that defines God the most, his love. He add to that Philadelphia, brotherly love and agape love. He add to those other qualities now love and now you've reached the top. Okay, this is the apex of the Christian life. If you've gone to the point in your Christian life where now everything is driven by this love, this brotherly love, sisterly love, and agape love, then you are like God. And by the way, love also confronts, amen? Love goes out into the culture and speaks the truth. Love is courageous and bold. It's not just about just affirming people. If you only affirm people, you don't love them, you love yourself. The reason why you affirm everybody no matter what is because you're scared of what they're gonna do to you, so you love yourself. True love is you will confront people. Okay, that's not good. You're headed somewhere very bad. You have cancer. That is true love. So Peter's saying, add that. Add brotherly love, Philadelphia, and agape love. And so that is the building, brothers and sisters. Okay, by that point, you're near the top. You will have a faith that will endure. You will enter Christ's eternal kingdom fully. We're all in the kingdom now, but ultimately, his final kingdom. You're almost there. So is that clear? I know that was long, but that was, that's Peter's fault. <laughs> he has such a long list. But these are many floors to that building. Many floors. It's a very beautiful picture. And then once you have this gospel progress that you're seeing in your life, then we're gonna close with this there is gospel accountability. If you're gonna have a faith that will endure in these dark, corrupt times, then you must also have gospel accountability. You must have teachers and believers who say, remember. And so you see that now in verses 11 through 15. Therefore, I attend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body, in other words, my time of death will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. So what word came up repeatedly there? Recall, remember, I will remind you so that you will recall so clearly, this is Peter's emphasis. Okay, if you have this foundation, you have the goal that you're headed towards, you're building now, floor after floor, then I want you to remember, right? I'm gonna hold you accountable. And there is a very important role that memory has in the Christian life as well to keep us on that path. And so because of that, I, I kind of read some articles on how memory is formed in our brains. Okay, this is not gonna be in depth because I'm just a pastor, okay? I just read a few articles but to try to get a sense of how memory works in the brain. But as I read these articles, what I learned is memory formation in the brain is a complicated process. Scientists are still, still trying to untangle the entire thing, but they have learned some things, and this is what they know. But for example, memories are formed when brain cells called neurons form new connections through tiny gaps called synapses, and the human brain has about a trillion of these synapses. That blew my mind. Ha ha, right? But uh, that's not even a joke. I don't know why I said ha ha. 
but it blew my mind, right, that my brain has a trillion synapses. And during memory formation, chemicals called neurotransmitters are passed through these synapses. And neurons associated with these synapses, they form a connection. They form new connections. But at the same time as some neurons are forming new connections, other neurons are losing their connections. So all that's happening at the same time as you form a memory. And so what all of that amounts to is the formation of new circuits in the brain every time a memory is formed. And in one of these articles, a neuroscientist at USC, this is how he explained it. And I'm quoting, ultimately memories are encoded in circuits in the brain and the synapses are just a means for etching out these circuits. That is what changes in the brain when a memory is made. You have these new circuits that encodes the memory. So that's how memory gets formed in the brain. So far, that's what scientists have learned. And through these circuits, the brain can have short-term memories or long-term memories, which are stored in different parts of the brain. They're still trying to figure all that out. Even positive, negative emotions play a role in forming these memory circuits in the brain. And, and here's the part that's so important to all of us. Okay, here's the, the main point I'm getting at. When you recall information, you are strengthening those memory circuits in the brain. And then as you relearn it and then reapply it, you expand those memory circuits. They grow. They literally expand physically in your brain. And as these memory circuits expand, you know what happens? It's amazing. But they become integrated with adjacent circuits. They begin to connect with broader circuits. And so now they become a network of circuits. So new connections are being formed at higher levels. And, and you've even experienced that, right? You're learning one thing over here and you're like, oh, wait a minute, that reminds me of this. And then now suddenly things are connected. And now you have a bigger grid at a higher level. I mean, that's physically happening in your brain and you experience it that way. And so then over time, as that happens, what happens? It reshapes the way you think. You literally start thinking differently. And as you start thinking differently, ultimately you start living differently. It shapes the way you live. And this is why Paul said in Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world don't let the world form memory circuits and shape your brain a certain way, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So it's very clear. As you recall the gospel truths, as you reinforce these circuits, expand these circuits through applying them, relearning them, recalling them again, relearning them, reapplying them, then they connect to bigger things and then over time it affects the way you think about everything and the way you live. And brothers and sisters, all of that recalling, relearning, reapplying biblical truth, which shapes the way we think, which shapes the way we live, all of that can be supported directly by the church community here. Amen? That, that's what Peter's talking about. That's why I, as your pastor, am reminding you, that's what Peter's saying, I'm the leader of all, over all these churches. I'm reminding you. I'm, I'm causing you to recall. So he says, I intend always to remind you of these qualities and truth. Verse 13, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. Verse 15, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So brothers and sisters, in closing, what we need to do is follow Peter's example, amen? Let's follow his example as a community. Let's remind one another Let's stir up one another. Let's make every effort to help people remember these precious truths. And you know what? I, I, I remembered, quote unquote, this past week, a beautiful example of this. But there is a brother in our church who himself admittedly fell away for a little while during a season and he actually left the church for a while and he was in the world doing other things. And I remember during that time, we were having this fellowship gathering, this party at someone's house, and there was another brother who no longer comes here. But this other brother saw the brother that I just talked about, mentioned, and he kind of cornered him in a kitchen. And I remember just kind of passing by with some guacamole going, what's going on? There's an intense talk happening over there. And he was like right up against him, right? And just like talking, talking, talking. And then later, what I realized is, actually, I heard it from both of the brothers, their version, is that the first brother who was kind of in the corner was being confronted by the other brother who loved him. And he told him going, hey, what's going on right now? 
don't you know? And he reminded that brother of the glorious truths of the gospel. All the things that he has in God, he reminded you know, him about the Christian life. And then that had an impact. I'm just sharing the testimony. And then that first brother eventually came back fully, fully. And I can tell you he's doing very well. <laughs> and we care for him. And that other brother cared for him. And so do you see that? That is what Peter's talking about here. So can we do that for one another? Amen? Especially in these times we live in. So join me in prayer. Let's close. But Father God, we thank you so much, Father. Your word is just so clear. It is crystal clear. It is not confusing. It is not ambiguous. But it is very straightforward. You have given us an unimaginable gift by your sovereign grace, which is the life, death, and resurrection for, of your son for our sins. And you have laid this gospel foundation in our lives. You have even enabled us to believe it. We have obtained this faith like yours, like Peter's, like Paul's. And now, Lord God, you make it so clear, build on it. Make every effort. And after you've built on it, help others to remember, to build, to not give up, to keep going. And as we do that, Lord God, we will be saved from this corrupt generation. And so, Lord God, we thank you. We love you, Father God. You are so good. So, Lord God, help us. Be with us. Oh, God, may all of us here and everyone listening online, may we all be found on that final day to be faithful in you, to have faith in you, to enter your eternal kingdom. So we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, today is Communion Sunday, so we're gonna just continue in a mode of responding in prayer. But let's, let's come before God. Before we take communion, the word of God says to examine yourself. So let's do that at this time. Where are you right now? know the gospel truth that Jesus through no merit of your own has saved you that is what makes Christianity utterly unique from all other religions in this world not all religions are the same that is a lie from the enemy Christianity is utterly unique it is not based on your merit but on Jesus' merit acceptance and love begins your walk with God. It doesn't come at the very end of your walk with God. But acceptance, approval comes at the very beginning of your walk with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you have that? You know, this past week, I remember hearing online somebody say, most people who reject Christianity haven't really rejected Christianity because they never heard it. They're really rejecting their ideas of Christianity. They think it's a legalistic, religion, intolerant, full of do's and don'ts. When Christianity at its core is unmerited salvation, unmerited favor, acceptance, approval from God at the very beginning of your walk with him not at the very end, after you've proven everything. No, at the very beginning. So have you rejected Christianity in your heart? Maybe you're here in church and you've kind of rejected it. Well, I wanna encourage you, hear it again. And by God's grace, accept it. And so maybe you're at that stage, laying that foundation. If that's you, I wanna encourage you, let, let's come before God and pray. For others, I'll keep this brief, but you, you're, you're building, you need to build. And maybe that's you, you need to pray about that. And for others, maybe you need to now hold others accountable and participate in that. Wherever you are, let, let's just come before the Lord. And let's just pray. And let's also confess our sins if we have fallen short. 
And then we'll take communion. Thank you, God. So Heavenly Father, we just come before you, Lord, and we give you all the glory. We worship you. Thank you that, Lord God, when we were dead in our sins, we were hopelessly lost under your condemnation, Lord. You saw us, you had compassion on us, and you came down to live in our midst and then die on the cross and then rise again. And everything we should have done, you did in our place. And all the punishment that we deserved, you took in our place. And you conquered our sin in this world and the enemy. You conquered death itself. And now, Lord God, that is our foundation. So, Lord God, I pray for some here, Lord. That foundation is, is actually still not there. And I really pray that they would fully and completely put their trust in that. That is our foundation. And afterwards, Lord, from that point on, they would build on that foundation. And most of us here, we're at that stage of now building. I pray that we would build on that foundation, Lord. So help us to build. Help us to not just kick back with faith and do nothing. But Lord God, help us to build. And even that, that is your grace. The good work you began, you will complete. But we have a role. We participate with you. So help us, Lord. So that ultimately we will one day reach the goal of eternity with you, a faith that will last forever and ever and ever. That is the goal. So help us, Father God. So Lord God, today as we take communion, Lord, can you strengthen that faith? Can you make our commitment to you stronger again as we remember what you did for us? And Lord God, if there is anything that is between us and you, Lord God, any sins, we confess them. Lord God, forgive us, Lord, we are sinful. Forgive us. And so, Lord God, we come before you now, Lord, to take communion. Would you bless this time? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, let's Hopefully you have a communion packet from the welcome table, but let's take the, the small tab on top it back and don't take it yet we'll take it together but take out the cracker and I'm going to read from scripture for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take this together. Let's take the bottom tab, pull it back. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup together. 
Praise God. Let's spend a moment in prayer, thanking the Lord for all he's done. And then we're going to close with final worship. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you so much.